What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back with a fresh episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As we learn about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. And now, welcome to season two. Woo! Fish Sauce season two, let's go. We're so excited about this new season. Absolutely. It's crazy how far we've come since season one. It's nearly been almost a year. I can't believe it. Since you last all joined with us for the Female Founder Series this summer, We've been hard at work both on fish sauce and individually as people. As a team, we met together and we really brainstormed about what would be the theme for season two. And we decided that growth would be the theme. And just like startups, season one was our way of figuring out product market fit, figuring out who our audience is, how do we ask questions to our speakers. Season two is all about taking our learnings and growing and scaling out our listener base in different channels. So what we realized was that through this fish sauce journey, our mission and our family has grown. And so next, we wanted to quickly chat about some of our personal and professional growth updates. Wilson, what happened with you this summer? Well, this past summer, I wanted to explore a new area that Elton and I haven't had that much experience in. We're both operators, so I looked into investing. So I joined Fifth Wall, which is a venture capital focused on real estate and technology. It was super stimulating, learning about new markets and passion founders. And for my second year, I'm trying to figure out, do I want to be an operator or an investor and really trying to hone in on one of them. And I'm re-listening to Kyle Louie's episode. So these things are timeless. I'm still trying to dive back into it. Well, hopefully you come on the operator side and join me. Been 150% focused on WeWork. I essentially have transitioned into the GM role here overseeing Northern California. So come visit if you're NSF. I'm really excited about not only the company, but also the growth of the company, its team growth, and also personally to grow and, and take on more volume as well. For fun, essentially been to three weddings out of the four weekends that existed here in October. And for the last wedding, I went to a bachelor party, which was a lot of fun. Definitely spent way too much money on all these different events, but it's well well worth it. Trying to get my life back together, get some rest, and then continue working on Fish Sauce Season 2. Well, question for you, Alton. All of us are wondering, when is your wedding? When are you going to invite all of us? <laughs> I hate that question, right? <laughs> We'll see. Stay tuned. This summer, we have been super busy. We did record our first live show, and Elton and I were expecting, what, 30, 40 people? But probably 20. Yeah, I mean, like, we're keeping the expectations low, but honestly, it sold out. How many did it turn out to be, Elton? We sold out probably about 80, 80 people who bought tickets, which is crazy. It was nuts. People were coming up and like knocking on our doors and, and really saying like, hey, we didn't buy a ticket, but can we just pay cash? And like, feel free, there's not enough seats, but I mean, we're really, really grateful for all the, the support there. We were so overwhelmed by how many people showed up, filled the room and stood in the back. But at the end of the day, big thank you to everyone who came out to support and huge thanks, especially to our partner, Nap, who helped us promote the event and WeWork, who helped us host the event and gave us their space. And then our speakers who came to be on the panel, Baby Choi and the Boba guys, Andrew and Ben. Wilson, for those who missed it and want to see it live, how can, how can they watch this video? Yeah, well, first of all, they did miss out. But if they really um, want to check it out, it's on our YouTube channel where you can subscribe to new episodes and future content. Big shout out to Christian Edwards, our editor who took this initiative on upon himself and he did it pretty quickly. So quick execution on his part. Yeah, huge, huge shout out, Christian, for being so innovative, creative around all this, really setting the standard for what Fish Sauce can be in the future. Also, if you're not already on the Fish Sauce family email, join us on our website for the behind the scenes look and information and add a little bit more of a personal touch to what Fish Sauce is about. While you're there on the website, check out the swag store for some fish sauce exclusive t-shirts, stickers, and some days hopefully some sweaters. We can't wait to see everyone rocking this swag everywhere we, we travel to around the world. So 
Enough of us talking about this past summer. People are excited about the season two lineup. Should we give them a little sneaky peeky? Oh, you bet. Wilson, you know all about that sneaky peeky. Give us one of your, one of your favorite ones that you're excited about, Elton. <laughs> all right, so I'm super excited about Phil Wang from Wong Fu Productions. When I grew up, and sure, when Wilson was growing up, we fanboyed all of Wong Fu's videos, and we, we thought hopefully one day we'd meet him, and that day finally came. Awesome. I'm, I mean, we're still fanboying. I still remember Yellow Fever. I think that was a big hit for us. And Nice Guys. Yo, and recently they had, what is it, Asia, Asian Bachelor? Oh yeah, that's definitely a hit. Wilson, what's yours? I think this summer has um, you know, got me interested a little bit more on the VC side, and my personal favorite that I'm excited about is Eva Ho from Fika Ventures, which is a VC space out of LA. And Elsa and I are both LA natives, and it's crazy how a lot of the local talent who are from LA actually start working in New York and SF. Her thesis is that LA is going to be big, it's going to be the next big thing, and she comes from experience as an EIR, entrepreneur in residence part of the city of LA, so really excited about this episode. So before we get to Phil and Eva, we're gonna kick off this season two with Brandon Ju. We wanted to skip the soy sauce and pick someone who was different from our standard tech-focused operators. So this version of fish sauce is with food and restaurants, something Wilson and I definitely, definitely want to pursue. <laughs> You're making me hungry. Brandon's humble origins took place cooking instant ramen for his friends while studying biology in college. I wish I could be Brandon's roommate. Wilson, didn't you cook me any ramen? I'll cook you something better, even better than ramen. I'll make you sushi. Okay, cool. I'm expecting it. After Brandon skipped the soy sauce, he decided to enter the restaurant industry, hone in on his hard skills in renowned kitchens in Italy, China, and the States. After a career working for established industry leaders, Brandon set out on his own and opened the Mission Star rated Chinatown restaurant, Mr. Jews. Brandon has been featured in Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Bice, and travels around the world sharing his delicious mouth-watering Pan-Asian dishes. Quick shout out to our good friend Brian Ko and also former colleague at Square for introing us to Brandon Jew, and he's also an investor in Mr. Jew, so thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Huge shout out, Brian. Thank you so much. Also, huge thank you to Brandon for hosting us for an amazing dinner the night before our interview. We can't wait to join you again for another family meal. What's Brandon's secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. Mm, can't wait. After college, you did a year-long apprenticeship in Italy, unlike most college students, and you went to work at Zuni Cafe, mm -hmm. and afterwards you went back to Shanghai to do another apprenticeship, and then you went back to SF to do a bunch of badass stuff, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of experience. Can you describe in your own words about this global culinary boot camp that's led to founding of Mr. Juice? When I first started, uh, you know, I was cooking in college, and... I wasn't thinking that this was going to be a career. I was a bio major, just studying life systems and cooking in the kitchen or cooking in the dorm room. It started in the dorm room, wow. you know, like just cooking just for myself, right? Yeah. I mean, that's I kind of started cooking for myself when I was in, you know, even like middle school, high school. My parents were blue collar, and and we'd be home after school, and, I, and when I got hungry, I was like, I better learn how to make some food for myself. You wow. know, that's impressive because all but we it wasn't, knew how to do was like ramen, yeah, like hot water. <laughs> I mean, that was probably. I mean, I was like doing pop tarts with like you know, it was nothing like great, <laughs> but like when I was in college, I was cooking as a part time job, and every every time I came back to SF for the summer, I would go back to back to school down in Southern California and I would just find myself getting into better and better restaurants because my interests 
was kind of growing. By the time I graduated, I knew I wanted to cook. I took the apprenticeship in Italy because, I mean, culinary school is really expensive. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like two months away from paying off my college right now. I, I knew I couldn't afford culinary school after graduating from the university. And I took a different route, a route that I think is more popular in Europe. And in Europe especially, they have these, it's called stages. It's an interview process, basically, in a kitchen. Here, it's more of like a temporary interview where someone comes, has, you know, a day or two, sometimes a week, and they're working pretty much for free, but they're working to try to get a job. And in Europe, it's a little bit different. People stage as more of an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. So you're there for months. They give you a living situation and you're working for free, but you're, it's, it's kind of like, kind of like an accelerated way into the, the real work. That was my route to, to some real training. In, Did in you have to apply? No. For the apprenticeship? Well, or do you have to go and find it, your... Yeah, it's kind of convincing the chef to take you. There's only so much room. And usually for, for you know popular restaurants, it takes kind of convincing and a good resume and usually a good reference too. How'd you find your apprenticeship? Uh-huh. I knew I wanted to be in, in Emilia Romana. And that's a region of Italy that is known for a lot of its tradition. So balsamic, prosciutto, parmesan. I was very interested in food history, which is something I'm so interested in. In Bologna, there are very, very strict traditionalists there. There's a monument for tagliatelle, which is a noodle. It's a, there's a monument even there for the exact size of tagliatelle. So if it's not this exact width and length, then you can't call it tagliatelle. That's why the monument's there, because it's like, this is what it is. If someone's saying that it's tagliatelle and it's not this, then it's not tagliatelle. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of champagne. If it's not in France, oh, yeah. That's it right. can't be called champagne. Out of curiosity, I know you wanted to go to the region, right, to mm. learn culinary, but yeah. knowing that you grew up with Asian roots, why didn't you go somewhere in Asia and try to find the best chef there to learn from? By the time I left, it was kind of like this time of America. For, for that time period, it was like Asian fusion was like the rage. Like the end of the 90s, kind of very beginning of the 2000s. People were maybe a little bit feeling like it, it, it was a little saturated. At that moment, I wanted to get back to actual real foundational traditional cooking. I think Italy was interesting to me. At that point, it wasn't really a matter of choice for me because it was more of like the opportunities that I was looking for. It was like either go to school or try to get into a restaurant, you know, abroad. I knew if I couldn't afford school, I wanted lessons from like grandmas and I wanted lessons from people saying like this is the food of my region the source yeah the source exactly because when I thought about a lot of the things maybe that I didn't like about the school it was based on a curriculum that someone was passing down but it wasn't maybe heartfelt and I you know really appreciated that about about food is is that when when I cook certain dishes I, I remember people 
and I remember them because of what they taught me. And when I do those recipes, it's in remembrance of those people sometimes. And I think when you have those kind of connections, it makes the recipe more powerful and it makes the story more powerful and it makes the reason to pass that recipe to the next person more important. And all those things have, had made me start to realize that I needed to start cooking Chinese food. I felt responsible, but that was later down the road when I started to really feel like I was participating so much in that for Italian cuisine that I wasn't doing it with my own family's food. And I wasn't using my training for the purpose of passing these recipes down and examining them and, and trying to figure out how we can make them potentially better. I'm kind of curious about the difference between the apprenticeship from the one in Italy mm -hmm. and the one in Shanghai. The length, the experience, the coaches, the mentors, and how has those specifically driven you to actually found Mr. Juice? When I think of the difference of the two apprenticeships for me, the first one, I felt very foreign to the country and the city and everything was new and in a way, I mean, in both places, that, that was the feeling. The, the thing that was really strange for me was like, you're, you're like a kind of imagining you're going to go to the motherland, you know? And, and for me, like going back to China, I was like, okay, I'm going back to the motherland, <laughs> you know? It was strange though, because no one associated me as Chinese. No one thought I was Chinese. No one thought I looked Chinese. No one knew what I was. And why do you think so? Is it the way you, what you look like or your demeanor or how you dressed up? I think it's all that. I think, I think it's, I think partially it was all that, but it made me realize how much Chinese American I was versus what they saw as Chinese. When it first started happening, I was like, man, this is like a little, it just felt weird I, I, as far as my identity, you know, especially when you're like, I'm going to go back here. And like, just kind of like really absorb how it is like, and to feel, still feel like you're an outcast or a outsider, at least, was strange for so me. So that sparked additional interest in wanting to bring kind of that Chinese American culture together. Exactly. Exactly. I think at that moment, I realized how different Chinese Americans were first. And then that is a, it's a very different story. It made me a little more confident and a little bit more open to really wanting to actually tell the story of Chinese American versus maybe Chinese in my food. Once I connected the Chinese American theme to my career, it made me have a, a new purpose to be in this business. If, if Mr. Jews wasn't open, I would be I, I wouldn't be in the industry anymore. What gets you most excited about founding Mr. Ju? Is it sharing of the food, the experiences, the bridging of culture, watching people laugh and drink and come together? Yeah. What part of it excites you the most? The first is, is that the building itself, it just felt very important to me to have it still be a place where people celebrate. It's been a restaurant in Chinatown since 1890. Like when growing up, we had banquets there and my uncle got married upstairs and we had a bunch of red egg ginger parties upstairs. And I remember it being like this really exciting, bustling. It was a festive place to be. And when I had gone to visit the restaurant, when I was considering taking over the lease, we were the only ones there. It was a shell of his former self. There was one waiter. There was maybe one cook back there. You know, it was a ghost town. I felt like 
in a way like that I was coming to Chinatown less and less as a local and that this building was just declining in a way physically and maybe as far as its its energy and and its, its interest so getting the space renovated and back up to operation and having people celebrate in the space is one of the the joys that comes out of operating Mr. Jews for sure. The second that comes to mind is having the space to be creative in, you know, building the kitchen and having a bunch of cooks that are very interested in, you know, participating in trying to one take local produce and products and ingredients and how do how do we use those things into traditional combinations but also try to make things a little more exciting or showcase the ingredients the freshness um, of the ingredients the freshness yeah. yeah like all those relationships that that I've had with with these small farms I, we gave them a bunch of seeds and had had them grow chinese vegetables organically for us so there's another there's another layer here and it kind of even goes back to my bio interests having really good asian especially Chinese produce be grown by these talented like small farms that are you know organic and biodynamic there's a whole community that you get to support through this too so those small farms those passionate farmers when you get to actually support them and it, it creates a community and i think that's something that i learned through Zuni and Quince a lot of restaurants that are californian they have these very tight relationships with farms. So when you were talking about the first point about going to Chinatown and seeing the environment, seeing the energy and then essentially seeing it die down, I got goosebumps hearing it because we were there on Friday and when we were there we just saw it come to life. Like there was so much excitement, there was so much laughter, there's so much experience, right? You walk through, you see the bar, you see people drinking, you see people dressed up and then you go into the dining room mm-hmm. and there are just so many different types of tables and different types of people mm-hmm. um, all enjoying the food that you create. When I was imagining that scene of how it was before and what it is today, it's just amazing to see everything turn around. And the coolest Thanks. part about what you said was going there for celebrations with banquets and whatnot. Elsa and I, when we went there with our friends, we were celebrating every person's success and yeah. what people were doing and their upgrades and their promotions and all that stuff. And it was oh, yeah. exactly what you mentioned. Cool. I mean, I think that's what restaurants should be it should be a place where people gather have fun and celebrate and be with each other and and get to you know just just share food i think that's something that's great about chinese food too is it's really meant to be very communal it's family style it's family style that's right so as an executive chef do you see yourself more as a general manager ceo of the company restaurant or do you see more of yourself as a creator I think I lean towards the more creative and I, I think what I've learned as a chef is is that you can't be as creative as you want to be unless your business is is sound. I've been part of restaurants that when the business starts to not do well, then you have to compromise your creativity or you have to be put into a situation of considering compromising your creativity. And to me, that is a place that I, I just don't want to be. So I I try to really really take care of the business and really try to get efficiency to where it needs to be. And we were talking about when you were thinking about creating Mr. Juice, it mm-hmm. was basically 
like creating a startup as well. You went out and got funding um, from venture capitalists and you had to create an idea, you had to understand what customer segmentation you wanted to target, what the design elements were, what the experience and flow was. Very similar to what I do on a day-to-day as well um, in a startup. So I'm curious what your thought process is around that, what your experience fundraising was for a restaurant. I mean, fundraising is maddening to me. It's, (laughs) It's absolutely maddening. But I think what it did do, that process, it made me fight for every part of the restaurant. It made me really decide what was important to to the project. It made me comfortable talking about what the restaurant was going to be and and was wanting to set up as far as goals, whether it's financial or just personal goals. But with VCs and, and, and the fundraising that had to happen, I think they're really investing in a person and a, and a passion. And when they see that, they can relate the two worlds and they happen like there's there just happens to be a lot of people that appreciate really just like good food in, in a good space and I good think, community good experiences totally yeah. totally i mean <laughs> i think some of them see it as a donation you know <laughs> maybe less of an investment and some of it more of a donation we talked about over the years like maybe a tech company can have outsized returns but for a restaurant it may or may not have those outsized returns later. You want to be cash flow positive, mm-hmm. but maybe during the period of time, it's just experiencing that that restaurant, that community, even when it's not cash flow positive. Restaurants have really changed, especially the last 10 years. And relevancy, all those things that are very closely connected to startups as well. There's there's people in the market that are, are your direct competitors how how do you stay relevant you know throughout the years um how do you have people keep visiting you um, reoccurring revenue from customers yeah or, yeah know, people who come back totally yeah. restaurants these days there's more opening and more closing all the time you know back in the day i felt like there was more about this neighborhood restaurant that was there for the for its immediate community and then kind of branched out from there and that's the i mean that kind of older school approach is what I wanted from Mr. Jews. Where does it come from? How do you build those values into the restaurant, the company? Is it top down, bottom up? Are there tangible things you do on a day to day to instill those values? And just to quickly add, like culture is so important in terms yeah. of camaraderie, yeah. especially in the restaurant and or operations world. Totally. So how do you in- implement those into into Mr. Jews? On a day to day basis, I try to make sure that I thank them for what they're doing right and i try to give them you know the other thing too is like cooks they want they want criticism and that's what they're there for and i think when especially cooks that understand that relationship my relationship with them is that i am going to critique them along the way every day the more comfortable they are with this critiquing process the more education they will get from it I think that's a life skill in general for anybody, not just cooks. I think so. I think those who work in corporate companies and things like that, everyone should know that critiques is good and to be comfortable with it. I guess totally. I mean, I think I think that's. I I'm I'm pretty cheesy in that way. Like (laughs) I will, I totally will bring the whole life thing into the kitchen because I think it. I mean, it feels in a way like you know even like your your own family they will tell they'll call you out you know and that's the that's the thing like you know we is that an asian american thing <laughs> maybe thing? Yeah. <laughs> probably 
yeah, it might have started like, you know, my, my grandma, when I, I remember when, when I hadn't seen her for a little while, she'd be like, you're fat. I'm like, oh my dang, high, high, <laughs> gang, just like, damn. My uncles always say like, oh, Elton, you're so short. How does anyone like look up to you? <laughs> They're not saying that now. <laughs> no, they still do. <laughs> for our team, like, you know, I, I try to stress that every day too, that we're a team. And that this is about, and, and that's the, the, the part that I have them try to realize is how much I rely on them too. You know, my wife is an artist and, and she, she understands kind of, you know, sometimes like a, a artist's creative struggle sometimes. And I told her the extra layer to a chef's creativity is that someone else has to fulfill it. As much as I want to, I can't cook every plate of food. I can't paint every single, you know, canvas. So in a, in a, in a way, I have to rely on other people's eyes, ears, hands, and if you're on the walk, I guess your knees too to fulfill the vision. Yeah, so a lot of times in companies, the CEO has to start trusting their direct reports mm-hmm. and they have to be able to say, "Hey, I'm not going to be able to do every single piece and micromanage. Mm-hmm. Are you able to now let go and believe that mm. the next dish is going to be the highest quality that you would expect every single time. My, I think I'm just trying to think of what, what, uh, maybe some, some of my cooks might say is, you know, cause I am, there is still like uh, a control that I, that I still need to learn how to let go of that balance of, of being present and, and being involved on a day to day is something that I still feel is very important to, to being a chef. I also know giving responsibility and having people, you know, kind of like have people fuck up and be okay with it and and actually like know that that's going to happen and how I react to those those mistakes. You know, that's the opportunity to have people really understand what I'm looking for. And that's the hardest part maybe about like how I learn versus how I want to be as a manager in a way is because a lot of my training was was you know chefs throwing shit like across the room and punching walls and telling me that I'm just a piece of crap. I think that's where college really helped me is because the the basis of higher learning uh in a way was more of you know done on a not such a emotional level. Going back, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Mm. You you're talking about your grandma yeah. um, kind of like scolding you and giving you raw feedback, etc. <laughs> yeah. um, when you're starting Mr. Jews, it's it's a new age type of Chinese cuisine, mm-hmm. right? You're essentially adding a, your extra flavor on it. Do you feel that your grandparents and mom and parents are proud of what you're doing with Mr. Jews? Or do you feel like they're thinking, hey, you're losing some of the roots of what true Chinese mm-hmm. cuisine should be? No, I think they are proud. I think, you know, my parents especially my grandparents actually they they were initially disappointed that I was going to be a cooking they were like that's what poor people do you know how did they react when like you, you studied bio and then said <laughs> that's oh, what I mean yeah <laughs> you didn't become a they doctor were, yeah. <laughs> I think I think they they were a little yeah they were a little brokenhearted uh, when I first told them that this is what I wanted to do but I know now that they've they've told me that they're proud of me as far as, you know, maybe how Mr. Jews has transformed some of the food, I think what it came down to for me is answering the question of authenticity. That comes up a lot with 
Asian food in general, what is authentic, what is not, who gets to make authentic food. I realized that for me, authenticity was my training, my experience as Chinese American, and my vision. That was authentic to myself. I could never produce authentic Chinese food for someone in mainland China. I don't have the palate. I don't have... I don't even have the muscle memory or the taste memories of of those dishes to create them in an authentic mainland Chinese way. I have to create things that's that's authentic to my experience and and me. And when I realized that, that that's what made me feel like, what are you trying to get to when you are asking for an authentic meal? What a powerful way to say it. Yeah. And Elton and I think about this all the time for fish sauce, what it means to create a brand that is Asian American, but maintaining our roots of the Asian food that we like, but Mm -hmm. then as diverse as your team and diverse as my business school classmates who Mm -hmm. are coming from all these different countries. So we're trying to find that too. But I do have a question regarding the food for mainland China specifically. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a hole in the wall restaurant and you eat the the original sort of the mainland China food, and it's greasier than it is at Mr. Ju's. It's mm-hmm. a little bit different. How do you feel about that type of Chinese food? Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy it more or less? Or what's your opinion on sort of the hole-in-the-wall Chinese food that's not the Mr. Ju's Chinese food? I mean, I think, you know, when I started looking at the history of San Francisco Chinatown, th- that neighborhood pretty much like has created Chinese American food. They've created in a way unauthentic Chinese food. That's the history of Chinatown. And for me realizing that it wasn't important for this neighborhood and it wasn't it was it didn't feel important for the neighborhood to try to tell that story because its history was actually like creating a little bit of of its own food and how to attract people from other parts of the city to Chinatown. And that was a source of also inspiration for me. I think when it comes to like a lot of mom and pops that are greasy and stuff like that, I, for me, when I think of some of the origins of Chinese food, it started as chefs being doctors. You would eat specifically based on trying to heal yourself and chefs in China back, you know, way back then, they were almost medicinalists. They were there to try to counterbalance some ill parts of how you were feeling. When I think of all that greasy kind of, you know, food that you, you don't feel good about at the end of it, that's that's part of what I wanted to change at Mr. Jews is because I felt like the food of my grandparents and the food that I remember eating, it was always about balance and how you felt after. You know, it was more restorative and it was more about like getting a balanced meal to feel better at the end of it. The problem with a lot of Chinese American restaurants, the direction they were going was just using, you know, very cheap ingredients, trying to feed people like mountains of food. And by doing that, 
I think it lost some of its identity of what Chinese food means to Chinese people. But through that process, though, I also realized that that was part of my experience in America, like being exposed to General Tso's and being exposed to sweet and sour and beef and broccoli and all those things. And that's something that I'm okay with, too. You know, it's it's part of uh, of memories that I have, you know, and and I think that those memories are are some of those memories are what people feel nostalgic about Chinese food. So I, I don't really want people to feel uncomfortable about some of their love for that kind of thing. I just want to use those combinations and actually use really great ingredients and get down to the, the, the real recipe and, and find out what we can do with either the sauce making or the pantry building or, or, or the ingredients themselves to upgrade them to a place where I'm eating, you know, beef and broccoli, but it's like this really great high quality, like maybe grass fed beef. This comes out of like a place where I want to give someone like nutritious food. It doesn't come from like that. I want to, you know, mark up the price because, you know, it's trendy to have, you know, organic beef. That's not, it, it comes from a place where I want actually like people to have a better product and a better experience and a better relationship with how they feel about Chinese food. I have more of a comment than a question. I realized that when we're eating Chinese food, outside versus at home it's totally different right and yes it's greasy outside but i realize when i think back the food that um, my parents make my mom makes it's actually really healthy it's very medicinal it's actually very nutritious like the broth the chicken it's right. actually really good i forgot that that is actually a little yeah. bit different the way you describe food is it's like an art when you're thinking about creating a menu what is the process of creating each, each dish how do you how do you get inspired by it when it comes to building a new recipe, we, we first start with the ingredient. So we try to take something that we think is exceptionally great from a farm that we really believe in and want to support. The change of season obviously affects, you know, and that's that when you're when you're really connected to farms, um, you start to really understand that every season, every year is different. This produce, these products, they're 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 changing all the time. That kind of connection, you know, just goes back to being part of a bigger system. The th other two things that we consider is how do we make this maybe nostalgic for for people? And and so hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you walk around Chinatown and you see these jars of dehydrated everything. As a chef, like I started asking the questions of where does this shrimp come from? How is it harvested? How long has it been sitting in this jar? It goes all the way back to how it's produced. And that's what I'm mostly interested in as a chef is how some how a product is produced. Because that to me is like the integrity behind behind my food, I think, is 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 that I'm doing I'm asking those questions. I'm doing that kind of research because I want to provide a high quality ingredient for someone. We dehydrate our scallops, our shrimp, all those things ourselves because we get products that we believe in and then we just we, we do the process in, in, in our kitchen we're going to go to a few wrap-up questions sure. right now and the first question is many of our listeners are very interested in starting a restaurant mm -hmm. and elton and i talk about starting potentially a japanese whiskey bar lounge cool and I, we'll see what happens <laughs> <laughs> we have no experience besides eating there yeah. i think that counts as some yeah. experience right? yeah 
What advice would you give us or people who are listening who have very minimal experience? Well, I think of uh, sometimes when I get approached by, uh, like my mom, sometimes like she said, oh, I ran into a friend of mine, her her niece is interested in cooking. She wants to talk to you about it. My first reaction is like, just run, just (laughs) just turn around and run and do something else. That's the first advice that I usually want to give someone because it's a tough business. You have to be passionate and there's a lot of passionate people that still fail. I think operating is, is one, is one aspect of, of the complication, um, because your operation, you know, hinges on, you know, sometimes location or timing. And it's, it's such a, it's, it's, it feels like it's such a fragile business in a way. Like when, when food network came out and people were like, Oh my God, I want to be like a, you know, Emerald and, and have my cooking show. And, and, and they thought a lot of the industry was glamorous in a way. And the reality is, is that it's a, it's a blue collar job. You're in the trenches, you're working 14, 14 hour days on your feet, cooking day in and day out. And that kind of reality check is something that I think is important for people that are interested in it to actually see how it feels. Because, you know, until you actually, and, and then actually when you get into it and you still love it, that's a good sign. But having the actual kind of like trench view of how it's going to be in the the, hustle, it's the persistence, it's the passion. It is. It is. It is. And I think people that want to open anything in in the hospitality business, I think they, they have to have a passion for hospitality as well. You know, servicing people. I think, I think that's a, a big part of, of successful restaurants and, just like, I mean, I guess you mean just with tech too, like you need more than just a good idea. And it takes so many other factors. You know, for my process, I was like, it felt like forever to open the restaurant. And then it almost was like, now the hard part begins after it being like, this is, this was already so hard, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like fundraising and construction and all the legal stuff and all the just the hiring the training, the hiring, the training, the brandy. Mark, I mean, it goes on and on. Right. And then you finally have, you haven't opened your doors yet, you know, and for a restaurant, all that doesn't matter to the person that is coming in the first day. All this, all the, all the stuff that you did doesn't matter unless it translates to a good plate of food, you know, a really good cocktail, a, a nice dining experience, those kind of things, right? That's what, that's what the customer remembers and not, not about like how hard it was for you to get all yeah. this stuff open. I can relate on two, on two things. I think the opening and all the work that goes before a building opens for the role I'm in, like when a member comes in and steps their foot in the door, they expect perfection everything yeah. to be good and construction and everything has to be cleaned up the night before. And there's so many times where we have all nighters until like 5am <laughs> we get oh, yeah. an hour of sleep and then we wake up and nobody knows that we, we spent all night kind of trying to open the door. Right. Um, and it's, it's all like, smiles. It's to all them, smiles. Right. You know, it's like you're completely new, mm-hmm. um, but it's such an amazing experience for those mm-hmm. who have an opportunity to do it. The next question is, so your name is Brandon Jew. Yeah. And your last name is spelled J-E-W, but Mr. Jews is spelled J-I-U. What is the reason behind the difference in name? My last name got spelled J-E-W through the immigration officer when when my grandpa came through. 
part of changing the name to JIU was this whole thing with, with Chinese food too, like taking it back. You know, in a way, I felt like with my last name, it existed for the sake of it being almost a mistake and, and that I wanted to take back the, the name in a way. And, and with Chinese food, the way I felt about how people's sentiment was about Chinese food, they thought it was not good for you and, and cheap and just like unhealthy. I wanted to, to, in a way, like take that back. I wanted people to think differently of their experiences with Chinese food. The the way that I felt about maybe a little more like loose about the idea of my name being changed is that it was a loss in translation. I don't know what, exactly what happened, but I, I'm imagining my my grandpa and, and and this happened to a lot of immigrants back then too. Is their names got changed? I, I don't think anyone really. If my grandpa wrote down his Chinese name. They were going to be like, well, what does <laughs> what we're going to write down in English? And so they probably just said it. And the way the person processing spelled it was the way he thought it was said. So that loss in translation idea started making me realize how I felt a little bit like in China. And that loss in translation, you know, with, with J-I-U, the spelling of J-I-U, there was this idea that you can say Jew, it, you know, in, in all the different tones and it can mean all different things. And some of them, like Jew is like, you know, like liquor, like Piju or Got like it. beer, oh, you know, yeah. or th- there's lots of different meanings to Jew. And I thought, well, one, I thought it was interesting that the restaurant before me, uh, Four Seas, one of their characters was Jew. And I thought that was kind of interesting. But I also thought that this kind of loss in translation feeling was just something that I was feeling about, about the project in a way that there was, there was a loss in translation that I wanted to kind of reclaim. Though I can't fully empathize. My last name is a little bit different. It's Mm. K-Y-I. My dad pronounces it Ki. My mom pronounces it Kai. It's actually G in in Burmese. So the name is Burmese, but I'm ethnically Chinese. Uh So the name is kind of, Unique and it means a lot, but it is so defining. I think what I took away is like it's so defining. And if it's not something that you've decided or your family decided, it's very unfortunate. And you mm. want to kind of take back some of that. For a final question, we do want to ask you probably the most important question for you in particular of all our guests, because you're actually a chef. What is your secret sauce, both figuratively and literally? And for the actual sauce, yeah. what's the, what dish uses the sauce the best? I, th- I guess figuratively i think for me the the sauce that kind of was was our secret was understanding that this restaurant is you know i wanted it to be bigger than just just myself and you know for for us at mr jews finding a space that that has that kind of history and legacy and having kind of a a, a little bit bigger story or bigger kind of purpose, why we wanted to exist. But at, at its simplest forms, like we are there just to be a restaurant in the community, but we're also there to help promote Chinese food and and progress Chinese food in, in San Francisco. And, and, you know, for me, that has made, has given me more of a reason to feel like 
this is why I'm, I'm in the industry. So you mentioned that as Mr. Jew's secret sauce. How about personally? Personally? Just yourself, Brandon Jew, growing up. What is your secret sauce that's brought you to today? I'd say my family, you know, my wife and my, and my dog immediately. But my family has been, for me, like my support and my, a lot of my, a lot of inspiration too. When I think of my grandparents, what they had to do, it makes my feeling like the restaurant opening is such a minuscule feat because what they had to do, which is pack up all their belongings and move across the world, it, it, it makes me feel, it makes me feel inspired to progress our family in a way because they sacrifice so much. Even with, with Mr. Jews, the way, the way it existed, uh, a lot of the beginnings of me leaving Italian food to start Chinese food was losing my grandma and, and, and losing the opportunity to really understand a lot of the dishes that were important to our family. And, you know, I can find a recipe, but, you know, with, with your grandma, a lot of times it's, it's about how something feels and it's, it's, it's like a, it's like, you know, freestyling. They don't measure anything. They don't measure nothing. <laughs> so, I, you know, it is, it's, a, it's the gut, it's the feel, it's the, all those things. And, and to actually ask her those very nuanced questions about the recipe, I felt like I, I felt like I fucked up. And losing that impacted me in a way where it kind of propelled me to to understand the responsibility that I thought I had as a chef and, and within my generation of my family, that it was important to make sure those things got passed down to the next generation. Well, you forgot the fun part of the oh, question. Yeah, fun. Yeah. And the fun I part sometimes of the question. forget to have yeah, fun. Yeah, you go into deep thought. <laughs> which is a good thing. And what, what is that secret sauce, literally that secret sauce that, that you like to eat? You love most. <laughs> yeah. And what dish uses it the best? Like for us, it's fish sauce. It's fish oh, sauce. Yeah. yeah, it's fish <laughs> sauce, right? I do love fish sauce, though. We love you, too. <laughs> the actual sauce, I mean, for Chinese, is I guess it's got to be soy sauce, you know? If I were to actually choose one sauce that I really love, and it, it actually is very closely related to fish sauce, is bagna cauda. And it might be, it might be like one of the most simple sauces. It's, it's a sauce made of, of, of just garlic, anchovy, and, and it's just really gently cooked for a long time. And then you kind of add a little bit of acidity, either lemon or red wine vinegar or something like that. And you traditionally just dip raw vegetables in it. But I like it on top of, you know, like broccoli or, or fish even. Or do you know what? I'm, I have a lot of sauces, actually. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no wonder, so I was like, sausage. I know, I know. I love ginger scallion, you know, ginger scallion. Oh, I love ginger scallion. You know what <laughs> I mean? So good. That combo is just so good. What was that one? Bagnet? Bagnacotta, it's Bagnacotta. it's a yeah, it's a it's a North Italian sauce. Northern Italian sauce, awesome. yeah. 
Well, thanks very much for your time, Brandon. Of course. Really appreciate it. A lot of art, a lot of creativity, a lot of persistence and hustle heard in this interview. Thanks. So we appreciate it. My pleasure. And yeah, for those who haven't checked out Mr. Jews yet, definitely check it out. Their cocktails are awesome. Dope. The naming yeah. of the cocktail makes yeah. you feel so good. It's harmony and prosperity. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have one that just says drunk next. <laughs> thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and sign up for our newsletter for the latest updates and special surprises. Also, treat yourself and a friend to a Fish Sauce t-shirt from our swag store, fishsaucepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you rocking on the streets. If our mission resonates with you, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to share with your friends so we can welcome them into our Fish Sauce family. And lastly, big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce. What's What's your your secret secret sauce? sauce?